Welcome to Hearthside Salons, talks and conversations to feed your creative fire. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you a guest worth listening to. I've known mental performance consultant and historian Rob Latimer for years, and I know him to be an expert in many things. Given all that we're going through in this collective trauma of COVID, I wanted to talk to him about the human stress response. If stress is part of the way we're designed, why is it so hard to cope with? The short answer, we haven't yet evolved to deal with the stress of the modern world. We're still driven by paleolithic coping mechanisms. So if stress isn't going anywhere anytime soon, what can we do about it? We started by talking about all the sensations in our bodies when we're stressed, like elevated heart rate, that pit in your stomach, worry, headaches, and we went from there. What that is, um, those physical sensations, are part of what's known as the acute stress response. Uh, it is how our body reacts to stress. And the way we react to stress is actually not terribly great for the, the stresses that we have in the modern world. Right? The reason for that has to do with human anthropology, human history, and the way we have evolved, right? We evolved for a world that's very different than the modern world. Modern stressors tend to be non-physical and chronic. For most of human history, stresses tended to be physical and acute, right? You may have heard the, the phrase like the fight or flight response, okay? That's why we call it that, because that's what our stress response is actually built for us to do, to either fight something or to run away from it. That is what we are optimized to do. And the problem is, is that response does not do us any good when we're going in for, you know, our yearly eval with our boss or when you're speaking in front of a group. In many cases, it's obviously actually a detriment, right? because those things, that shallow breath, doesn't help us when we're a public speaker. Our heart racing doesn't help us when you know, we're trying to navigate a stressful situation. And there's, we're gonna talk a bit about the, the historical background of why our biological functions are the way they are, what's happening inside us and how that sort of came about. And then we're gonna talk about the effects that that has on us, especially as we, that short, what is supposed to be a short-term stress response gets to become a long-term uh, reality in our physical world. And then we're gonna talk about some, some techniques that can be used to reduce stress. A Couple of terminology things to address. People tend to use the term stress and anxiety. I asked you about anxiety, but I've been using the word stress. Um, People use those words interchangeably. Even professionals uh, in the mental health field sometimes use this, and certainly colloquially, colloquially we do. Uh, they're not the same, all right? Stress is external to us. Stress is about an external stimulus, and anxiety is just one of several responses to stress, all right? And stress itself is not necessarily a bad thing. We'll talk about this a little later, that there is both good stress and bad stress. In fact, 
stress is essential for any sort of growth, whether it's physical or mental or learning. Challenges are stressful, and we don't grow without challenges. So there is stress that can be a benefit to us. There's obviously also stress, which is distress, bad stress. And we're going to talk about how to both manage that and reduce it, because you can't get rid of it. Living a world, living a life without stress is living a life that is completely useless. Um, so we don't want to, there's no way to get rid of real stress if we're going to have a life. We're going to learn how to reduce it and then manage it. And then some of the things we're going to talk about today, um, I'm going to be talking about both evolution and psychology. And there actually is a field of study known as evolutionary psychology. And like any uh, scientific field, there are some controversies about that. Um, and I just want to, if you're familiar with it or are wondering, even though we're talking about both of those things together, what I'm going to be discussing is not necessarily evolutionary psychology. We're going to talk about evolution as the backdrop to why our physical responses are they are. But when we're talking about these physical responses and their emotional ramifications, we're talking about biochemistry and very sound, fundamental, indisputed ideas about how the human body works and how the human mind works and how it all fits together. So, um, so that background, that evolutionary background, why is our response to the stress the way it is? Especially why do we have a response to stress that does not help us? Why did this evolve? Well, because the modern world is a little blip on the human timeline. Um, Homo sapiens sapiens, which is what we are, uh, emerges about 200,000 years ago or so. Um, some anthropologists put that further back, some a little um, earlier, a little later. Uh, and humans, what we consider humanity, um, hominids in some form have existed for about 2 million years. For the vast majority of that time, we have lived as hunter-gatherers. Um, and something to note in the title, uh, I do know that hunter-gatherer is a hyphenate. It is a single term. It actually does annoy me that I titled it the way that I do, but I really wanted to mimic the whole Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy thing, so we get hunter-gatherer, accountant, nurse. Um, Hunter-gatherers, uh, we have uh, developed, humans developed agriculture, uh, reliable agriculture about 10,000 years ago. And uh, we've only lived in cities for generously about 6,000 years. Earliest cities in Sumer are probably about 3,500, maybe as early as 4,000 BCE. That's obviously just a tiny fraction of the 2 million years humans have been on Earth. So something like, you know, 95% of the time Homo sapiens sapiens have existed up to like 99.7% of the time humans in some form or another have existed. We have been hunter-gatherers. What life was like as a hunter-gatherer is a life focused on very basic needs. Food, water, shelter, that's it. Procreation, that's it. All right. Uh, humanity spent most of its time hunting down its nutritional requirements. That's the hunting and the gathering. Uh, humans lived as nomadic uh, small nomadic groups of about 150. Um, they had to be nomadic because the food was nomadic, right? If you're hunting animals, animals migrate, right? Big giant packs of herbivores, the people, the things that you're killing, uh, they move. You got to move with them. And even the chronic fatigues that, or the chronic stressors that ancient humanity faced 
we're still physical, not the mental and emotional stresses that we face. So something that's come out is that because of the, the scarcity of food, humans essentially lived in, in sort of like an intermittent fasting state. And you can see that as some people actually practice that nowadays for health, because there's a good amount of data that shows, um, data that show, uh, that being in an intermittent fasting state actually has benefits for humanity because we evolved around that state. We haven't had nearly enough time to evolve to the stressors of a modern world. And what's really important to understand, and this is both goes to psychology as well as some very interesting sociological and um, uh, political science and psychology, big picture issues. Uh, humans have spent most of our existence in a world where the highest success state was not dying. And that has shaped the way that our psychology works. It's shaped the way that our biology works. All right. If you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that bottom layer that humans have to fill, right, the basic elements of survival, food, water, excretion, sleep, procreation, those things are the basic needs. And if those aren't met, you can't move on to higher level stuff like art and architecture and self-fulfillment. And we still exist in a world where our brain and much of our limbic system still believes if we risk things too much, we might die. We live in a post-scarcity world, but our underlying neural functions haven't caught up to that reality. Neither has our society either, which is a whole other interesting conversation. Um, when we get down to how the human body deals with stress, there's going to be two big chemical reactions that go on in the body that we're going to talk about the stress response here. Um, two big things. Hormones known as catecholamines, which uh, is adrenaline. There's two types of adrenaline we'll talk about, epinephrine and norepinephrine. And then a, a hormone known as cortisol which is also called the stress, nickname is stress hormone. Um, and that's why we're gonna talk about it here. And the way that this works, and I'll try to keep it kind of brief here, but I do want you to understand all the things that are going on inside our body physically that drive our cognition and emotional reaction to stress. Um, the human brain has something known as the limbic system, right? It's also called the paleomammalian cortex, which will give you some idea. Paleo means old. That's why the Paleolithic era, when we were hunter-gatherers, is the old stone age. Paleolithic, old stone. The limbic system or the paleomammalian cortex is involved in emotion, motivation, learning, and memory. All right, some of these basic functions of human existence. Right, because if you don't have emotion. People think like, oh, we should all think logically. Well, it's actually emotion that tells us when risk is bad, right? Um, and to know like, oh, well, I don't want to risk something. You wouldn't be able to act logically if you didn't have that emotional response that like, oh, sticking my hand on the burner hurts. Hurt is bad. Therefore, I want to avoid that. Um, part of the limbic system is something known as the amygdala or the amygdala. Um, and it sits within the temporal lobes of the brain, and it is involved in decision-making and emotional regulation, and it's an incredibly powerful part of the brain. In fact, if we, we have found studies that if you stimulate it directly with electricity, you can evoke very strong emotional reactions in the person, right? Our neural 
uh, signals are all electrical. And if you hit it with an external source, you can create emotions where the person has no reason to have those emotions because those electrical signals are saying, this is emotional. When faced with a threatening stimulus, an outside stressor, some sort of threat, it sends signals to something known as the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is the sort of like the command center of the central nervous system or the autonomic nervous system, sorry. And when it gets the signal from uh, that amygdala response, it activates what's known as the sympathetic nervous system, which is the kind of the start button for the fight or flight reaction, right? The sympathetic nervous system stimulates the adrenal glands and it pumps epinephrine, AKA adrenaline into the bloodstream right away. And epinephrine, adrenaline, is one hoofa of uh, chemical in your body, right? It increases your heart rate and your blood pressure, right? That's why your heart races. That's why your face feels flush. That improves the oxygenation of your muscles and your organs so that those are operating at optimal uh, capacity. It opens extra airways in the lungs, again, increasing oxygen flow. That extra oxygen improves brain function and heightens alertness, including improved hearing and vision. It triggers a release of glucose, glucose and fat from storage within the cells of your body, providing fuel for you to do big physical things. And this entire process of triggering from the amygdala response to the adrenaline in your, in your bloodstream and the glucose coming in, that usually happens so fast but it happens before people even process the stimulus that triggered it. Your body reacts far faster than your cognition, all right? Before you go, oh, that's why I'm afraid. You feel afraid and you feel that rush and you feel the blood pressure long before you go, oh, that's why. Shortly after that initial reaction, your brain takes a second. And if that stimulus is still there and this response needs to continue, the hypothalamus then engages what's known as the HPA axis. And the HPA axis is an is a abbreviation for the hypothalamus, the pituitary glands, and the adrenal glands, HPA. And there's a cascade of hormones that goes through and keeps this response going. First, the, a hormone called CRH, corticotropin-releasing hormone, stimulates the pituitary glands. Right, so the hypothalamus sends this out, it stimulates the pituitary. The pituitary then in turn releases ACTH, adrenocorticotropic hormone, which travels to the adrenal glands. Right? And then the adrenal glands, once they're hit with ACTH, produces cortisol, the second of that big pair of chemicals that I mentioned. By the way, uh, ACTH, adrenocorticotropic hormone, has been shown to cause you to cry. So if you ever wonder why you cry when you're stressed out, Blame ACTH, that's what I do. Um, cortisol is the stress hormone, right? It's released into your body and it has a number of effects, right? In the short term, what it does is increases blood glucose levels, more energy for your muscles and your organs, and it creates an increased sensitivity to epinephrine and norepinephrine. Epinephrine is adrenaline. Norepinephrine is the neurotransmitter counterpart to epinephrine. So epinephrine's in your blood, norepinephrine's in your brain. 
And the way that it does this, the way that it creates this heightened sensitivity and the way that it uh, increases glucose in the bloodstream is by diverting your body's resources from longer term processes. So immune function, all right, bone formation, digestion, things you don't need in the short term. Cortisol kind of shuts those down and reroutes those resources to your fight or flight response and all the things that you need to deal with immediate physical distress, all right? That function is gonna be really relevant in a couple minutes here. Once the threat passes, your body concludes the stress response and shuts it down by engaging what's known as the parasympathetic nervous system. Sympathetic nervous system kicks it up, parasympathetic nervous system shuts it down. As the cortisol levels drop, that's a signal to reverse the fight or flight reaction and begin what is sometimes nicknamed the rest and digest or the feed and breed. Your normal functions as humans, those basic Maslow's hierarchy needs. It decreases your heart rate and your blood pressure. It returns the normal functions of digestion, urination, defecation, and it metabolizes and then excretes all of the hormones that had caused the fight or flight response, all right? It gets rid of the adrenaline, it gets rid of the cortisol, it gets rid of all those things going on, the corticotropics to hormone. The problem that we run into is that modern stresses are chronic and tend to be non-physical, all right? We still experience some acute stresses, right? If you were ever attacked on the street, you're gonna be quite happy that your acute stress response makes you faster and stronger, right? If you're an athlete, all right, you're going to be happy that it makes you stronger when you're, you know, we got an Olympic sprinter. She's very happy that that adrenaline makes her faster in that moment of stress. However, even those sorts of situations can, our stress response can be a hindrance, even in situations that are physical stresses. And they can become downright deleterious to us when we're dealing with chronic or non-physical stresses. The stress response interferes with our performance in a number of ways. It does have physical effects that can be a problem, right? It makes us stronger and faster, but it interferes with fine motor movement, right? That's why our hands get a little shaky, right? Not a problem for our sprinter, not a problem when you're fighting off someone or when you're getting mugged. Uh, a big problem for a concert pianist. A huge problem for a cardiothoracic surgeon, right? When, you know, millimeters are literally life and death, that adrenaline creating a shaky hand is a big, big problem. It also has emotion and co emotional and cognitive effects. It interferes with our cognitive ability, right? Uh, we often joke in impact of like in horror movies when someone's trying to get the key in the lock and, and like they don't, you know, like which one is the right key? Well, your hands are shaking and which one's the one? And now the guy grabs you in a horror movie and that's a problem. Um, we also have this idea of like blinded by rage. How many of us have done something we so, so regretted after we were upset? Um, I have a, a very good friend who broke his hand. He's one of the smartest and most level-headed guys I know. He broke his hand out of frustration punching a wall. Tom Petty did that. Tom Petty broke his hand in the recording studio. He was really upset with how the day's takes were going. He broke his hand. Kind of important for a multimillionaire guitarist to have a hand that works. Um, we do stupid stuff when our cognitions interfered with. Um, it also interferes with learning, right? When we're not thinking well, right, it prevents us from integrating new information, 
It also really affects our long-term well-being. Remember when I said that as cortisol levels drop, the parasympathetic nervous system kicks in and flushes all that bad stuff out and gets us back into the, the rest and digest. Well, if the stressor never leaves and cortisol levels don't drop, that process never kicks in fully. And that can have some seriously deleterious effects. When we have long-term effects of adrenaline, um, it has a number of, of, of negative uh, effects in the body. Um, adrenaline disrupts sleep patterns. Have you ever gotten about, uh, almost to sleep and you have that little jerk, that clonic jerk? And then you're like, well, I'm awake now because you just got a burst of adrenaline. And adrenaline makes you alert. And alertness is, is counter to sleep. It keeps your blood pressure high which can have a number of effects. Someone mentioned headaches. Uh, that can be from too much adrenaline. Uh, if your blood pressure is too high, it can cause the uh, parts of your heart to beat harder and become uh, what is known as hypertrophic. They get That's a muscle. If it has to beat too hard for too long, it actually builds up its size, like any muscle you've got, and that's a problem. Um, heart disease. Uh, it can continually disrupt your cognition, which is then exacerbated by the sleep issues we mentioned. Long-term effects of cortisol can be even worse because the way cortisol works, remember, is by diverting your body's resources from long-term processes. It can create digestive issues. Right? When you feel stressed, you're like, oh, my stomach's all messed up. There's a reason for that. Cortisol is keeping the blood from going to your digestive system the way it's supposed to in the, in the long term. It can lower your bone density because, again, the processes that rebuild your bones aren't needed in the short term, so cortisol deserts those resources. On the long term, you do need your bone density. It can cause weight gain all right, because it interferes with your blood glucose. And all of those things I just mentioned enter into a vicious cycle because they are all stressors themselves. They make you feel worse. They make it more difficult to deal with the stress that you have, which amplifies those negative effects and creates a vicious cycle. So if stress is a necessary part of life, and this is how our stress response works, what the hell can we do about it? Well, there's a number of things. Stress, as I mentioned, is needed. There's a certain level of stress that's needed, right? and particularly certain kinds of stress, what we call eustress, E-U stress, like euphemism or you know, euphoria, eustress, good stress. And then there is distress, bad stress. We thrive on challenges. That's how we grow. Whether it's a physical thing, you stress your muscles when you work out, that stress breaks them down and you rebuild them stronger. Or whether that's a cognitive skill, if you play the same piece of piano music over and over again, your skills will not improve past a certain point. You have to go to something more challenging. Get rid of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and pick up some Ferelize. Move from Ferelize to some Nocturnes, and then on to some, I don't know, avant-garde Philip Glass nonsense. Um, you have to keep going one level above where you are. That plus one experience is how we grow and learn. However, as we said, not all stress is valuable, right? Um, are we taking on good stress and are, can we eliminate the stress not inherent to our learning and growth? 
especially in a time like this as we're in a pandemic. We have a great deal of sort of like background static stress caused by the uncertainty of the situation. And we may need to take smaller challenges. We may need to create order because we have so much chaos. So how do we do that? Well, what we're going to talk about is a number of, of techniques um, that are part of what's known as the cognitive behavioral canon of techniques and its approach to psychology and, and learning um, that's built around uh, very action-oriented and solution-oriented um, approaches and techniques. And depending on what we're doing, different levels of stress are useful, right? So it's about taking our response and moving it up and down a spectrum of arousal, as it's called, uh, so that we're sort of hitting the peak performance. There's a, a, a concept of like the inverse U, like a bell curve, that as stress increases, my performance actually increases to a certain point and then it goes down, right? So if I'm a sprinter, you know, I'm Allison Felix, and I'm in the Olympics. She wants as much stress as possible for a 100-yard dash, all right? Because there is no point where that adrenaline is going to be pro uh, a, a detriment to her because she wants as much strength and speed over 10 seconds as possible. She needs 10 seconds. That's it. Our cardiothoracic surgeon, our concert pianist, they want just a little bit of stress, that a little bit of heightened awareness, but don't want the shaky hands, all right? Um, you know, don't want the sweaty palms. Don't want mom's spaghetti. Um, for the M&M fans out there. So it's about shifting. How do we control this um, so that we end up in an optimal situation, an optimal response? One thing to consider as well is that stress is external. Stress is objective. It's a stimulus that we have no control over. Our stress response is internal and it is subjective, right? How many people uh, in, uh, you, if you've got the cameras on, you feel free to raise your hands, but how many of you uh, really enjoy uh, roller coasters? Okay. Okay, and then Heidi, I, I can see Heidi, she's saying no, she does not enjoy roller coasters. Some people hate roller coasters, right? People who are on roller coasters, that the things that we talked about, they, if they hate it, you know, they're afraid, um, their breath gets a little shallow, their blood pressure goes up, they get that pit in their stomach, right? Ta going up that hill, that first hill, oh, that sense of dread, that pit in the stomach, you know. If, you're, if you love roller coasters and you're exhilarated, what does that feel like? What does exhilaration feel like? Well, it's like butterflies in the stomach, hmm. right? You get a kind of a charge, that heightened awareness. It's the same thing. The stress of the roller coaster is external, but whereas I'm exhilarated, Heidi's terrified. And it's a different label that we've placed on it. And some things are going to be terrifying no matter what. A grizzly bear charging you is terrifying unless your brain is not working. That is a clearly lethal threat. 600 pounds of apex predator, you should be afraid. All right? Even very similar situations. If I jump out of an airplane and I have a parachute on, I'm going to be having an absolute blast. If I jump out of an airplane and I don't have a parachute on, I'm going to be terrified. The external stimulus is different, but the context has changed my interpretation. 
somebody who's afraid of public speaking, well, there's no grizzly bear. There's nothing inherently threatening about public speaking. Right? There's no physical threat. It's an emotional threat. Right? Are we afraid that somebody might you know, disapprove of us or make fun of us? If we're shooting free throws to win the game, some people thrive on that. And some people shrink from that moment because of anxiety. The external's the same, the internal's different. And while some people might be more predisposed to that, certainly I think a guy like Michael Jordan or Wayne Gretzky was predisposed to really thrive on those moments. You can also retrain your responses. And regardless of where you are, you can get better. All right. Michael Jordan clearly predisposed to be a much better basketball player than I am. But if I were to play basketball and practice an hour a day every day for a year, I'm going to be much better than where I am currently at the end of the year. I'm never going to be Michael Jordan, but I can be better than where I am. All right. So how do we do this? These techniques that we're going to talk about. The cognitive behavioral canon, the cognitive behavioral canon, like I said, it works from a foundational approach of treating people as whole individuals. We are bio, psycho, biological, psychological, and social beings. And it really works by looking at changing our patterns of response. How do we respond to stress? And then how do we change the behaviors that we don't want by replacing them deliberately with the behaviors we do want, All right? So we are biological, we're physical. We've been talking about this biochemical response going on. All right, we're psychological. We have minds, not just brains, but minds. We have emotions and sensations and thoughts. All right, those internal reactions to external circumstances. And then we're social. We exist in a web of interpersonal relationships uh, and connections. And you can have a breakdown in performance from any of those. Stressors come from all of those. And these techniques are designed to shape our thoughts by focusing on beneficial patterns of behavior and response. Right. There's really five major areas of skills, and we're going to talk about three and a half, four of them today. Uh, there is what is often termed relaxation, but is more technically intensity, arousal, and man of man management of intensity and arousal. So like, like I said, that U-shaped thing. How do we pump ourselves up if we need to be pumped up? And then how do we calm ourselves down? In this case, since we're talking about stress in a pandemic, we're gonna be talking about relaxation. How do we calm ourselves down? Self-talk and specifically positive self-talk. We have a constant internal monologue going on. How do we turn that to the positive? How do we uh, stop negative self-talk where we're critical about ourselves or down on ourselves? And how do we create cycles of positive self-talk? Um, there's often the joke of like, would you ever talk to your friends the way that your internal monologue talks to yourself? And it's like, of course not. I like my friends. Um, we're really hard on ourselves, often in very irrational ways. Uh, and that, that saps performance. Um, concentration techniques. And concentration, you know, there are limits to human concentration. All right. Uh, Optimal attention spans about 45 minutes um, in we're often not in optimal circumstances. And concentration techniques are not just about focusing, but much more about refocusing. How do we bring ourselves back to the moment? How do we bring ourselves back to our goals? All right. Uh, a great statement from a, a college basketball coach 
was that he does not set out to have his team win 40 minutes. They're going to win four minutes, one at a time for 10 times. All right, refocus. Uh, imagery, and this is the one we're not going to talk about because uh, it tends to be very complex, um, but imagery is incredibly powerful. And we do practice this sort of implicitly. We think through old arguments and get upset all over again. Um, we think through situations and sometimes set ourselves up for failure by, well, if I ask out my crush, she's going to turn me down. Uh, if I go and I you know, make a fool of myself for the presentation, my boss is going to hate me. Imagery is powerful. So powerful, it can actually teach motor skills. This is one of the things that I find absolutely trippy, that if your imagery is powerful enough, people can improve at motor skills without actually practicing the motor skill. Uh, we're a whole mind-body unit. Um, and then uh, the final area, and one of the most powerful, especially long-term, is goal setting. And uh, it is probably the most powerful in the long-term. And it... Uh, is incredibly useful at lowering those sort of like background levels of stress, as well as just straight up improving our performance by making us more efficient and more effective at what we're trying to do. Right. So first thing we're going to practice right now, it's a relaxation technique and a physical technique. And then it's going to be concentration in how are we, how I'm suggesting you implement it in the future. Our body believes that shallow breath is what we do when we're anxious and have a stress. Deep breathing is what we do when we're relaxed. So if we deep force ourselves to breathe deeply while we're freaking out, that's a signal to our body, no, everything's fine. You can lower blood pressure. You can kick in that parasympathetic response because there is no stress because I'm breathing deeply. So obviously everything's fine, right? And this works. And we're gonna breathe deeply and what we're gonna practice here uh, is what is often called box breathing or square breathing. We're going to breathe in for a full four count. We're going to hold it for a four count. We're going to exhale fully pushing out all of the breath for a four count. And then we're going to hold the exhale for a four count. Right? We're going to get the oxygen really deep into us and really deep out of us. Right? So we're going to begin. Breathing from the diaphragm, move that lower hand and I'll count it. Inhale, hold, two, three. Exhale, all of it out, three, four, and hold. Inhale, hold, exhale, three, four, hold, two, three, four. One more time, in, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, exhale, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four. Now we obviously just did three cycles of 16 seconds there. All right, so barely a minute. How do people feel? Okay, chill, calmer, <laughs> all right, more relaxed, less shaky. Yeah, that's what it's supposed to. It's supposed to trigger in that, you know, rest and digest uh, feeling, that feeling that you are ready to go back to normal, boring life, all right? 
it's incredibly powerful because you don't have to believe that it works. It doesn't matter what state you are in. If you do it, it works because it's triggering the parasympathetic nervous system. Your body doesn't have a choice with that, right? It's why it's one of the most effective, regardless of where anybody is. Um, I have a close family member who um, right now has some, some uh, brain issues and it causes her to experience very irrational sort of panic attacky moments. And one of the ways that you know, can sort of get out of that quickly or quicker is to have her sit down and breathe. Um, because regardless of what's going on and regardless of, of what uh, functions, higher brain functions are going on, breathing deeply triggers the parasympathetic nervous system. It just works, right? And ideally, the rest of your cognition follows, right? You were feeling angry or you're feeling upset. Well, those could have just been a response to adrenaline. You might be overreacting. Studies have shown you direct, if you inject someone with adrenaline and you ask them how they feel, they'll tell you they'll feel angry. Why are you angry? I don't know. I'm just angry. Well, they're not angry. They're feeling adrenaline and their brain's trying to make sense of why they feel that way. So I must be angry. Um, it's also why certain types of tumors known as pheochromocytomas uh, are related to aggression. They're little adrenaline secreting tumors. They make people aggressive because they've constantly got adrenaline and their brain's like, I'm angry. Um, I suggest two things when you're practicing that. One, uh, practice it before you go to bed. You're lying down. This is a time when you want to be relaxed anyways. Um, oftentimes that's a time when our brain decides, oh, this is the perfect time to think about all the things you've screwed up since second grade. Um, focusing on the counting, focusing on the, the sensations of your body, that's going to occupy your higher brain functions, your cognition. It's also going to further associate deep breathing with a relaxed state. You're in bed, that's when you're relaxed. And it actually improves your sleep. So you get better sleep, which has a knock-on effect to stress reduction or anxiety reduction itself. The other time I'd suggest using that is to combine those two. Close your eyes, do that anytime you need to refocus, anytime you need to, your concentration's waning, right? You're trying to get through a bunch of bills or some tedious work. Set a timer or set a, you know, however many is like if I'm, you know, grading papers, right? After every paper, I'm going to do two cycles of my breathing. And that's going to refocus your attentional resources for whatever you're doing next. It's going to make you more efficient. Your task gets done better. It gets done faster. And you feel better about it. Right. The second uh, technique that we're going to use, talk about, is positive self-talk. And specifically, reframing experiences. There's a Harvard Business School uh, study that found that uh, there was an experimental group and a control group, people taking an exam. The experimental group, or the, well, the control group went in the exam just normal, like you would normally. The experimental group, before they went in, they said one sentence in a calm, clear, confident tone of voice. They said, I am excited. Afterwards, the experimental group reported markedly less 
feelings of anxiety than the control group did. Just from saying that one thing. Because in that moment, they were feeling the stress response of having to take this exam. But in that moment, well, their interpretation of that stress response could tip either way. They were anxious or they were excited. And they talked themselves into and reframed that feeling as excitement. Again, this is not always going to work. If a grizzly bear is bearing down on you, saying, I'm excited, is not going to convince your body and your mind that this is exciting. All right. But there's a lot of situations where it is the case, and especially in the pandemic situation we have right now, we have a tendency, because of our background as hunter-gatherers, to interpret uncertainty as equal to risk. Because for so much of our lives, uncertainty was risky. An uncertain food supply was a lethal threat. An uncertain water supply was a lethal threat. And we still do this. When I'm considered, if I consider moving to Seattle for a new job, the limbic system in my brain says, well, if you move, you might not have food. Right now we're surviving and that's as high as success gets because that's what our limbic system believes. And even though I'm not consciously thinking, well, if I move to Seattle for that new job, I might starve to death. Our limbic system is reacting as if that's the possibility. Because while that's not a real risk, there is uncertainty of how a new job might turn out. And certainly in this pandemic, there is uncertainty of how things are going to play out. But that uncertainty does not mean that there is risk in the way that our, our, we're reacting to it. And so this is actually what I would suggest as a positive self-talk, a version of I am excited in this situation, is that when you're feeling stress, or honestly, just sort of as a reminder, to remind yourself, uncertainty is not risk. Right? Uncertainty is not risk. Because as we're thinking about, well, what happens next month? When am I going to get to see my folks again? When is, what happens if, you know, somebody, you know, people don't, you know, follow the new restrictions? Or what's going to happen? When is there going to be a vaccine? Those things are uncertain and they're out of our control. And for those reasons, letting ourselves become worried about them is dangerous. Uncertainty is not risk. Acknowledge that there is uncertainty. Acknowledge that reality. We can't get rid of that reality. That stressor exists, but we can manage it. The final thing that I, I'm going to suggest is, again, what I think is one of the most powerful tools in existence certainly for life, but especially for stress reduction, and that's goal setting. Because we're in a situation where we have so much un, uh, uncertainty, and it is going to be stressful, those are stressors, it is doubly important to have, have a sense of control over the things we can control. And good goal setting does this. The focus should be on process, not outcome. All right. Outcomes are not bad in and of themselves. Outcome goals. I want to get an A in this class. I want to get a promotion. That is not a danger to have a vision of where you want to go unless that's where you end. All right. Ending at the outcome goal is deciding I'm going to go to St. Louis 
and then getting on the road before you pull up Google Maps. You have no idea how to get to St. Louis from here. You're just going to drive east. All right, St. Louis is east. You know, that doesn't work. And it can, in fact, be a hindrance because outcome goals are often not under our control. And it can leave us feeling even less in control than we were before, which is a horrible feeling. No one likes that feeling. It's a tremendous source of stress. So we're going to focus on process versus outcome. And the goals that we set should have three characteristics. Some models have more. Like I said, I'm cutting this down a little bit. One, it's a specific action step, right? Saying, I want to eat better is not specific. It is a process. It is an action, but it's not specific. I'm going to, for me, for instance, this is actually one of my goals, you know, in, in the pandemic. I've been eating horribly. I'm quarantined. I'm going to eat, I'm going to drink a protein smoothie in the morning with an hour after I wake up because I know myself, I know that's something that will put me on a good path for the day. That's a very specific action step. All right. If you're writing and you want to write the great American novel during the quarantine and you're just like, I'm going to sit down and write. That is an action step, but it's not specific. All right. And it's going to leave you without a direction. You want to get to a point where you know exactly what you're going to do. I'm going to pay my bills. Okay. Uh, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to go open all of the mail and sort everything into different categories. And then I'm going to go one category at a time. All right. That's a specific action plan. You can follow that. You know exactly what to do next. If you don't know exactly what to do next, you're not specific enough. It's measurable. This is the second criteria. Measurable. This is related to specific. Um, you should know exactly when you can check market done for the day. Right? I'm going to eat better. Well, okay. I'm going to eat. I'm going to drink my smoothie in the morning. All right, check mark. I'm going to write today. Okay. I'm going to write for two hours. I sat and I wrote for two hours. Check mark. I'm going to write 1,500 words. Check mark. Measurable. All right. You need to have that feeling of accomplishment that check mark. If you don't know when you can check mark, you need to get more measurable. And the third thing is controllable. And this does relate to, again, the outcome goal versus process goal. It needs to be something that's under your control. If you say, I want to get an A in this class, you want to get an A in my class, you're one of my students. That's not in your control. I'm the one who enters the grades. This one, this is what I always talked about when I was still teaching with students. You've got to get down to controllable things. You cannot control what grade I give you, but you can meet with me once a week to discuss your notes. That is controllable, measurable, and specific. Right? You can study for 25 minutes a day. Right? You can study for two Pomodoros, you know, like whatever method you're using. That's specific, it's controllable, it's measurable. Right? And what I would suggest in this quarantine situation, we have a defined yet non-specific situation. And if you're thinking about this and you're thinking about specifically using this to combat long-term stress and give yourself a, self, a sense, yourself a sense of control over this quarantine situation, start with goals that you want out of when the end of the quarantine has happened, right? And plan backwards. This is what I always suggest with goal setting, plan backwards, all right? 
this is a good concept for any project or any goal setting situation. Start at the outcome and then go, okay, what's the step right before that? And then what's the step right before that and right before that and right before that until you get to this is my first step. So if my goal is to, you know, be fitter at the end of quarantine, since I don't know exactly when it's going to be, I want something realistic. If quarantine's 90 days, saying I want to get down to 10% body fat is unrealistic. But I want to, at the end of quarantine, I want to be able to look back and say to myself, I ate right and exercised. I've got an outcome goal. It's not specific. It's not measurable. Terribly so. But I start planning backwards. All right. I want to create habits where I exercised every day. Okay. Um, you know, I want to exercise right now. I think it's realistic for me to exercise for a half hour straight. Okay. Um, you know, I plan backwards to say, I want to write the great American novel. I figure that's going to be about a hundred thousand words. If it's going to be, let's say five months in quarantine, that's how many words per day back it up until you know exactly what your first step is and you go, okay, I, tomorrow when I wake up, I can address that very first step. I can begin that process, that habit. If you know you can do 10 push-ups right now, you know, you're like, all right, so I'm going to do 10 push-ups tomorrow. I'm going to do 11 push-ups the day after that. I'm going to do 12 the day after that. Specific, measurable, controllable. Um, and that's going to give a sense of control and order during a, the quarantine when it's a situation where we don't have control over a lot of these things. And there's a lot of uncertainty and what seems like a lot of chaos. And that's going to lower the level of stress and it's going to lower our anxiety by combating it with positive steps. Do awesome. folks have questions? Yeah, I was, it's, it's interesting listening to you talk because I've, I've been taking notes. Um, there it's from a writing standpoint, you know, we have to look at everything our characters do and motivate from a point of life or death. And it's, and it's that same kind of thing as like the moving to Seattle isn't like, it doesn't mean you're going to starve to death, but your brain makes those weird leaps. And, the, and that's the same thing I, we do in designing characters. It's like, okay, well, you know, this is happening and it just means I'm going to get embarrassed. Well, what happens if you get embarrassed? Well, then everyone's going to hate me. Well, if everyone hates me, then I'm not going to be, you know, no one's going to help me. And what if I break my leg? Then no one's going to bring me food. And then therefore I will die. So it's like, see, being embarrassed is life or death. Like on the, you know, in the hierarchy of like why that character is afraid of that thing. Like if you dig oh, yeah. deep enough, you get to life or death. So, yeah. And those social things, just to tie back, those social things, social pressures matter so much to us because yeah. of the way we've lived for 2 million years. Yeah. Being part of a group, a small group was life or death. It really, those social things feel like life or death because for so much of our existence, they were. And yeah. we still feel that now. If you feel in it, you may be feeling it from social isolation yeah. uh, and things like that. You know, those but, are part of that. And the big, the big one for when you were talking, I was like, when you talked about you know, the imagery stuff being so powerful and um, that popped into my mind was, I, I call it the anger editor. I have that voice that kicks in that's just like, well, what I should have said, and da da da, and then I'll go through and I'll literally go through the entire speech in my head, and I'm like, "What are you doing? Why are we writing a speech? It's three in the morning. Stop it!" And I can't like can't get myself out of it to just go the bleep back to sleep, you know. And it's just all you know, and I know that I'm hyped up in that adrenaline state. Yep. So, um, which I think the other fascinating thing is, you and I met because of adrenaline state training. So yep. um, 
for for those of those of you who don't know, uh, uh, why would you? Um, Rob and I used to both work for a uh, self defense training company that uh, that trained people to fight in adrenaline state. So, and it was very interesting because there was that like loss of fine motor movement, loss of reasoning, you know. But man, you could really zone, hone in on everything, and you were strong. Fun. Um, does anybody have any questions? Yes, Sid says, any suggestions for dealing with stressful communications with difficult people in our lives to keep from overreacting or dealing with argumentative people? I would imagine we're all just facing a little bit of that right, in, right about now. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, certainly some of the, the things I've already mentioned, um, you know, if you've got a phone call with someone you know who's going to rile you up or you know you're going to have an encounter with them, your body's already prepping for that stress. Mm -hmm. It's already beginning that sympathetic nervous system reaction. Take the time to breathe. Um, you know, use positive self-talk as well. Uh, it doesn't just have to be, you know, like I said, uncertainty is not risk. That's just the mantra that we gave. Um, in sports, the, the example I always give, and uh, because it's ridiculous and people find it hilarious, when I used to play tennis, um, Return of serve is the point where you can think about stuff and that's when your brain goes wild, when you got a chance to think, like right before you're gonna communicate with this uh, person. Um, and in sports, thinking too much messes with your motor sequence and you get what's known as the yips. Really happens to golfers, can definitely happen in uh, baseball as well, happens in tennis. Uh, return of serve is about the only time because you've got time to think. So when I used to play tennis, I used to do the cheerleader chant in my head, be aggressive, be, be aggressive. <laughs> because one, it got my brain to stop thinking about the other thing and just trust my motor sequence, but also because it was a mantra that I wanted to apply in that situation. Because if you've ever played tennis, one of the principles is to take uh, shots as they rise. You don't want to let them hit the arc of the parabola and hit back. So you want to take them on the rise. I want to be aggressive. So that was positive self-talk in addition to sort of like, you know, a concentration technique. So if you're dealing with someone in your life who's argumentative, um, you know, have that positive self-talk does not need to be out loud. It can be in your brain as you're listening to them. Have pre-planned statements that you know are going to resonate with you. Like, you know, well, they don't know any better. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, like if, if you know, like, you it's, know, it's, they're it's a product, my, they're, yeah, they're a product of their context, you know, whatever. Say, it also, it's not my job to fix them is one that I yes. find handy when I can remember to think it. Yes. And, and to that as well, it's not my job to fix them. Focus on process. Have you done all you can with that person? Um, you know, if you've listened to them, acknowledged their feelings addressed their arguments, expressed yourself, you, you know, you can check mark that list of things you wanted. It's like, I checkmarked it. There's, I've accomplished my goals for this conversation. There's nothing more I can do. I am not in control of them. I'm not in control of their responses. I've done all I can. That's one of the reasons why goal setting is so pow powerful just in general as well, because you know what? I can't guarantee I'll get a promotion but I can work backwards and go, well, these are all the things I can control that will make it likely for me to get a promotion or likely to get in any class. So that even if the outcome turns out bad, I feel okay about it because I did everything that was in my control. 
And so that's one stress. of the, I'm not, you know, I'm not stressed by the what if. Yes. One of the things that, that we actually talked about last week with um, Heidi Harris, who's a um, applied behavioral science person, she was saying, reflecting back what that person is saying to you can be a way of diffusing because everyone wants to be heard and acknowledged. So if someone is going up their, their tree of anger, um, they're probably not being acknowledged. And if, if we can stop, not, not focus on winning the argument, but just like, how am I going to get out of this one now is just topic of what I hear you saying is you're really upset about this. And I can understand how you'd feel that way can be a really good way of diffusing the upset because they're, they're not expecting empathy from you or understanding. And all of a sudden, if they get it, it can really kind of put them on the back foot and then go, Oh, Oh, you're, you're actually listening to me. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I would say as well, I mentioned these cognitive behavioral techniques are about reprogramming your responses. Your response might be, I want to punch you in the face. Um, <laughs> and what's important is what you do immediately after that. And uh, because it takes time to develop a new response. It's a skill. You're working at it. You're replacing one existing pattern of behavior with a new one that you are specifically choosing. So you know, you're going to go into those conversations and you might want to, you know, uh, fight that person, but you know that you want to, to, to push, you know, to develop a thing where you're not road raging or you're not getting upset at them meddling with your life. If it's your, you know, like, Oh, my mom's always saying like, you know, I'm an adult, throw it on the ground. Um, <laughs> but so so it takes time and you you have to just keep redoing it just like mm -hmm. you to learn to play the piano you have to practice it every day yeah these are mental skills that's yeah. what i i teach that's what we just went over these are skills they have to be practiced and they have to be practiced deliberately like any good skill well and specifically with road rage and all this stuff like i've heard because my office window here faces the the street and the sidewalk and i heard more people shouting at each other today then, you know, just because we're all so on edge. And um, a couple weeks ago, my friend Valerie Hager was on with this. And she said she likes to imagine everyone when she's walking down the street is like literally missing limbs, like like they're bleeding. Because, you know, you know what you're dealing with. And we look at someone and they're, they're, they're fine, right? But if you imagine that they are actually visibly wounded, not in a way to gross yourself out, but just, you know, they're hurting you have a choice. Do you want to stick a sword in them when they're already bleeding? Or do you want to be kind and gentle with them? And hopefully the way we hope they would be with us. And I just thought that's such a good way to go through the world. If we look at everyone around us is hurting. And if I can look at you and know you're hurting, I'm maybe give myself a second before I come at you because I'm upset that you just cut me off in traffic or whatever. It's like, you know what, that person is hurting. And I don't know why. And I'll never know why. But okay. Yeah, and it's it is a learned, you know, we're we're a sum of all of our experiences, and we can create new experiences. Um, yeah. There's a great story about one of my uh, advisors back in grad school, uh, a guy named Teofilo Ruiz, um, and he's a uh, he's at UCLA. You got that? Uh, we mentioned him in the uh, the discussion on um, uh, storytelling during pandemics. Um, he got the uh, National Humanities Medal from Obama. And uh, Bill Jordan, who is another incredibly famous historian, and he were at a conference once, and Bill Jordan was telling me this story. They were crossing a street, 
and a woman wasn't paying attention as she's driving and she slammed on her brakes and like slammed on the horn. And Bill said my initial reaction, he was about to just start shouting at her because she was shouting at them when it's clearly her fault. And he was just going to be like, well, you're the one. Blah, 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 blah. And Teo, evidently, to give you an idea of, of how this guy is, Teo turns to her, takes his hat, doffs his hat, puts it back on and continues through the crosswalk. And Bill Jordan's like, it was one of the more extraordinary things I've ever seen. And he's and I just remember thinking, I want to be Teo. Yeah. And and that was, you know, the result of a guy whose life experiences included uh, being put in Castro's prison after the revolution because oh. he was too far left. Um, so, you know, we don't all have quite the crucible that created that, but like we can, you know, shape our choices. Yeah. Um, and if we decide this isn't important enough for me to be mad about, that can be your positive self-talk. Yeah. You know, this well, isn't that's... important enough for me to be mad. And if you keep telling yourself that, eventually that will become your pattern of behavior and thought. Yeah. And it's healing too, to like not stress yourself out by focusing on those upsets. We interpret uncertainty as risk because yeah. again, for most of human existence, it has been. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important to create those senses of control in ways that are beneficial, but in yeah. ways that aren't harmful to others. Well, on that note, I think we can wrap up. Um, this has been really interesting, Rob. Thank you for de- delving so deeply into the science behind all of this and sharing all of your expertise with us. Next time on Hearthside Salons, Michael Mack was the first black Romulan in all of Star Trek history. He was the first writing intern of any hue to also act on camera for the Star Trek franchise. Then, the Shakespeare-trained actor left the bright lights to pursue a life in the clergy. Now, he's a writer, putting all of his experience to work. It's going to be a fun conversation. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept-to-pages writing courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, check out pagecraftwriting.com at PagecraftWriting on Instagram, and at PagecraftWrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from PageCraft. Thanks for listening, and stay well.